This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And my question for the week is, will the Wee scandal have legs? Last week, we heard testimony from both the Kielberger brothers and the prime minister. The consensus seems to be that the Wee founders did not do themselves any favors, but Justin Trudeau made a very convincing case that he did nothing to advance we for that student grant uh, contract. So uh, this morning, the Conservative Party released its own version of the events, including a tally of the money the Trudeaus received from we, this time adding in the benefit of a platform, a political platform for Justin Trudeau. The other big question around this is, will Finance Minister Bill Morneau have to go? And there are lots of other more practical issues preoccupying people, whether the plans for a return to school will keep kids and their families safe, and in general, how to navigate the danger of infection in stage three. As always, we would like to hear from you. The numbers 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now let's go to John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hey, Libby. Hey. Hi, Libby. Welcome back. Welcome Thank- back, indeed. Thank you very much. Charles, let's uh, start with you. You're the liberal. So will the we scandal have legs this week? You know, my, my own sense of it is that the testimony from the prime minister and the prime minister's chief of staff last week has largely uh, put the issue to bed. I mean, it's the dog days of summer. We're into early August. Uh, Canadians have heard a lot about this issue. I think they've probably deduced that there's not a lot of there there. I think when you see the opposition resorting to fake releases and um, their own tallies, it's usually indicative of a, a desperate attempt to insert new oxygen into uh, into the story when there really isn't a lot. And, and that's the only thing that will keep this story going or which will give it legs is if there are new pieces of information that drop or come forward. And that just doesn't appear to be the case. It just doesn't seem to be happening that way. Karen, do you agree? Yeah, I largely agree with Charles. I think um, we've learned all that we're going to learn about this situation. And um, I think, you know, I guess my hope moving forward is I hope the government has learned from the situation because um, the only thing I find concerning is, is the prime minister's assertion that, you know, there's really nothing he could do. He was, a, you know, a bystander of the entire process and just, you know, implementing the recommendations of the civil service when really there's a lot that could have been done differently. And so I don't know that this 
scandal will continue on much beyond this week. But I do hope that enough has been learned that we don't have to deal with another scandal similar to this one because <laughs> there are there's this is again um, there's lots there's lots here that are of a concern I think to people. Uh- John, uh, will Finance Minister Bill Morneau have to go? And yesterday there was a lot of reaction to his suggestion that that Trudeau needs some kind of ethics czar in his office to tell him when he might be in breach. He needs more than an ethics czar. I think he needs an ethics, uh, you know, course on on how to how to deal with that issue. But you know, I, my my thinking on this, Libby, is this: I, I don't think it's a dead issue or one that'll go away, you know, I, I think that, I'll give you this, I, I think the Prime Minister and, and his the staff, Keith Helfer, did a great job uh, in trying to dissuade, you know, the issue, I think, the re- revelation that, that you know, came to, to light uh, after the Prime Minister's um, uh, submission, that, that he only knew about it uh, in the Senate to push it back, uh, was, was one that sort of helped him. I think what didn't help, though, was the whole revelation that, you know, that, that one, of his, one of the staffers in the PMO was actually contacting we and, and getting the program started whilst it was still being, uh, while, while it didn't go to cabinet for approval. So there's little nuances like that that I think might be Just, seen as inside I- baseball to, to, a lot of, to a lot of Canadians. But I think it still has a lot of folks scratching their head to say there's something there um, but I would give more credit to his chief of staff, Katie Telford. I think the prime minister looked, you know, okay, but still a bit defensive and sometimes a bit smug and, and whatnot. But I thought Katie Telford, who had the most to lose, because as a chief of staff to a minister or to a prime minister, you are the one that has all the details. You know, who called whom, what was made, what was done, what was said, all of that kind of stuff, where the prime minister and, and ministers usually don't have that kind of knowledge or that kind of detailed knowledge. And I thought she was able to deflect a lot of that uh, in in some ways quite effectively and, and look calm while doing it. So I thought that was good. But I don't think this is going to uh, going to go away soon unless and until the finance minister resigns or, you know, they get rid of him. Because I think one of the most effective questions that was asked of, of both the prime minister and, and Katie Telford by either Pierre Polvev or... Uh, uh, or the uh, the conservative ethics critic Bennett. was you know at which point do you uh, you know does a does your does your minister who has to you know get gets a violated or investigated three times by the ethics commissioner which time at which point do you can you fire them or they lose their job I thought that was an effective question that really a lot of folks um, asked and, and until that happens I think this will still have some some leaks um, you know you touched on something that I think uh, I am not sure I heard before, and something that other pundits have sort of hit on as the next phase of this, which which is actually going to be harder to understand than, than the Prime Minister's family making over half a million dollars. Uh, and that is uh, the question of how did we get the go-ahead to start spending money before the thing was approved by Cabinet? Now, you said it was a staffer in the PMO. I don't recall hearing that. Yeah, no, Olivia, it was. There was there was some I remember this was the exchange that where Pierre Polovev kept asking the, the Katie Telford, the chief of staff, for the name of the staffer who made the call to we um after the uh you know when when the Prime Minister decided to push back the the agenda or, or I should say remove the agenda from cabinet. because according to what he said, he wanted to uh, make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. Uh, and then when it went back to, to cabinet, which was, I think, two or three weeks later, there was a period of time where 
um, the PMO staff. Uh, again, this is just this is all public information that was that was that was you know released or at least testified at the uh, the hearing. And then Pierre Polovev kept asking Katie for the name, and then she finally revealed the name of the person that that made the call. Um, so there was that revelation. I think that was you know that was mentioned that that. But again, I, I would say maybe a lot of that would be construed as as you know inside baseball as far as uh, you know amongst uh, amongst pundits and, and political staffers. But does it leave enough for Canadians to keep scratching their head? I think this issue. Uh, and the conservatives in the opposition, quite frankly, will make it effective because it'll be the narrative of yet again this prime minister and this government uh, being investigated by the ethics commissioner, uh, and yet again there's there's a sense of entitlement. If that sticks, uh, that that could be trouble for them. Charles, uh, there seemed to be a rising crescendo of speculation that Bill Morneau will have to go. And uh, when I read so much of that stuff, I assume it's coming from inside the party somewhere. Well. You know, it, there's no doubt it's been a rough few weeks for uh, for Minister Morneau. Um, and, you know, where the allegations against the prime minister and payments made for appearances at We Charity events um, is sort of, you know, he's characterized that as a perceptual issue. It's clear that what what's happened with Minister Morneau falls into a, a somewhat different category in as much as he took a trip um, at the behest of We Charity, um, and uh, and in fact has a daughter uh, working uh, for We Charity, and so that's a that's a slightly different order of magnitude. Now, it's not many governments who willingly um, throw their ministers of finance under the bus, and the particular circumstances that could see Minister Morneau go um, would be. A, if his family's had quite enough of this, thank you very much, because he is a very successful individual. He's actually been quite a competent finance minister. And uh, if he decides that, you know, he'll happily return to the private sector at this point, there's not much to be done about that. But if the, if the minister does go, there is this would be a significant opportunity for um, the Trudeau government to, to hit the reset button in a very major way. Obviously, it would mean the appointment of a new Minister of Finance. Um, right now, the leading contender would likely be Christopher Freeland, although it is entirely possible that they, they could go outside the current government for, for a very prominent individual. Now, it would have to be a very prominent individual to be able to... Um, make the move, and presumably there would be a by-election at some point in the not-too-distant future that would facilitate such a move. Well, yeah, the um, name, sorry, the name bandied around is Mark Carney. Well, he's the obvious contender. I mean, just an extraordinarily well-credentialed individual, former assistant deputy minister within the Department of Finance, former governor of the Bank of Canada, former governor of the Bank of England until very recently, 54 years old, amazingly accomplished. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, that, that, would, that, would be, that would be a near seismic event. And, and, you know, Minister Morneau has been, he was very successful in terms of renegotiating the Canada Pension Plan with the provinces. Obviously, negotiations around health transfers were a lot more contentious and continue to be. But um, Bill Morneau is no slouch, and he could very easily continue on. And from a political perspective, in normal circumstances, most senior advisors to the prime minister would, 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 
urge him to think very carefully before uh, opting for uh, a new minister of finance. I know Doug Ford did it a year into his mandate, and you know it, it seems that that has gone reasonably well. Minister Phillips has done a, a solid job, especially in the context of COVID. Um, likewise, Minister Fideli has done uh, a very solid job in his new capacity as Minister of Economic Development and Job Creation and Trade. Um, but at the federal level, it's the kind of thing that gets noticed internationally. So if it happens, it will likely happen in a very specific set of circumstances. Uh, Karen, uh, so do you think Morneau will have to go? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not a liberal, of course, so I mean, I don't share all of Charles's views on uh, the performance of the, the finance minister. I think everyone can agree he's an accomplished businessman, but I think the transition into political life was difficult for him. And I think we've seen that play itself out, unfortunately, on the national stage, where, you know, he had stuff in a blind trust and then sold it before making a decision that would have, you know, um, benefited him financially. There was a whole issue with the tax changes that were um, not well thought out and pushed back upon by Canadians that were farmers to doctors. Then there's this issue. And so, you know, nobody doubts that his competency, um, but, but I think that there is a blind spot. Um, it's not entitlement. I think it's just, you know, making that transition from being a very successful business person to being a politician. And, uh, you know, and, and again, I think that if there was, if there was any sense that um, Mark Carney would be in take over that role, then I, I think the, the Prime Minister would be well advised to make that change in a way that is um, as seamless as possible. I mean, I don't know if that's wishful thinking. It certainly would be great for the country. But, I, I, you know, if it's actually really a possibility, then I think it's one the Prime Minister should jump on, to be candid. Okay. Well, um, my last question on we, and this is uh, something I've, I've been saying for a bit, that at this point, for me, what worries me almost more than the conflict of interest stuff, because I think it's clear that uh, both Trudeau and Morneau don't exactly get that, is if the Prime Minister's timeline is correct, that means that nobody in the civil service looking into this and nobody in his cabinet that that approved this caught very obvious red flags about the situation at we that would have been apparent in a Google search that that I find really troubling. Well, and, and I think that's, that's right, Libby. And I, and I would say that you know, and this is sort of what the opposition are kind of were sort of needling the, the prime minister and, and and his chief of staff, Katie Telford, on, which was the timing, which is to say, okay, if the prime minister did note that on, and I may get the dates wrong, but on May 8th or whatever, early May, when, when it was on the agenda for cabinet to talk about the fact that this program was going to go to we, that he himself, the prime minister, said, no, you know what, I'm taking it off, I need you bureaucrats and civil service to go back and do a bit more of a thorough due diligence. And the question of the words due diligence come up quite a bit of time here to say that, you know, because I knew, according to the prime minister, that his family was involved and that there were some linkages to uh, to the family, that we charity and, and the brothers, um, and, and come back to us with some, you know, making sure the due diligence was done. And then two weeks come by and it gets onto the agenda of cabinet with the exact same recommendation. So then the question that the opposition have uh, quite quite effectively is, 
Well, if they couldn't do two weeks of due diligence, that most people, when they Google this and find out that, you know, there are some challenges with board resignations and the, the board chair resigning and, and some financial, you know, questions or allegations, if, if we were able to find that out as the public uh, by doing the Google searches, why wasn't a bureaucracy, when they were told specifically and explicitly by the prime minister, to go back and do some due diligence because we knew there might be some questions. And I think that's the answer. That's the issue, I think, Libby, where, you know, yeah, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the, the, the brothers widely have done, the, the, the Wee brothers, uh, the, the Kilbergers, didn't do particularly well and that the prime minister and Katie might have, might have recoup, recovered from some of that. But overall, there's still a lot of questions that, that the opposition quite rightly have a right to ask and get answers for, and I'm not sure they're getting them. And I think as long as that happens, and the fact that the Minister of Finance still swirls around, you know, with the allegations of the 41,000 and, and all of this, I think it's still going to have some legs. I think it's still a very interesting topic to the media uh, and to pundits who will make sure that it stays, uh, it stays um, and gets some oxygen or it keeps getting oxygen. Well, yeah, now we have, I mean, the Toronto School Board uh, is cutting ties and, and asked for an investigation into the details of those contracts that it seems nobody looked at too closely. When I, when I see some of those numbers, right, for putting on a wee day or whatever, you know, I sort of scratch my head. The, they're very big numbers, and I know that it costs a lot of money to put on those events, but there are a lot of things where you wonder, did the money get, they get for this, really, did that go to all go to what they said they were doing, and how did they amass a huge real estate portfolio? I mean, t- for me, the, the questions about the charity itself are, are um, larger than the, the political ones. Well, I can't speak for the charity, but I will say that um, senior officials within the Department of Employment and Social Development had had regular dealings with the WE charity and with the Kielpergers dating back to 2017, and that there was a, a fairly high level of com- confidence within the bureaucracy that WE charity could deliver the program as it, as it was designed. And admittedly, it was designed in a hurry. And on the fly has been the case of so much government policy development in the context of COVID. I mean, stuff that we've seen rolled out in a matter of days generally takes a year or more to plan. And COVID just hasn't given us the, the, that luxury. The other thing is a lot of a lot of the stuff that's come to light with regards to We Charity, um, you know, problems with the board, etc., have have only come have only really become known within recent days. They weren't necessarily known to folks in the bureaucracy or to the prime minister's office or elsewhere well, when these decisions were being made in May. Um, and the, you know, the, the other thing that this, the, the great smoking gun that the opposition has pointed to, and John was alluding to it, was um, the prime minister's director of policy, Rick Tice, was the one who literally referred the question of whether we could administer the program to officials within the Department of Employment and and, uh, and uh, Social Development on May fifth, and you know this this is and and Pierre Poilov was you know touting this as oh here's the green light from the Prime Minister's office. I mean I was in government for six years under Jean Chrétien. I mean these are the kinds of referrals that happen a dozen times a day. I mean they are ju- it's just as routine as routine gets in terms of how information flow and decision-making happens within government. The notion that this was a green light is ludicrous. 
and it really spe- I, I was I was really surprised that Pierre Poilievre, who I saw at just a few months ago as a potential leader of the Conservative Party, I mean he was just terrible. I mean he went in. He was rude. He interrupted constantly. But worst of all, he just didn't have a narrative. I mean, it was his job to lay out the case against the government as to how the government had failed the Canadian people. And he, and he just didn't do it. I mean, it was a golden opportunity for the opposition. And then Michael Cooper um, from from Lethbridge, Alberta, the Conservative MP who, who dramatically produced a piece of paper and accused Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, of having taken a, a trip at we expense to, you know, to Kenya in 2011, only to have Katie say, I was never on that trip. Like, I, I'm sorry, what can I tell you? I just didn't, wasn't part of it. I mean, that was just embarrassing. Okay, I I think people uh, uh, disagree with your your view of uh, who came off uh, which way during the questioning. Though there's no question that some people were put off by the very aggressive kinds of questioning. Uh, I I want to move on to another topic. Uh, so uh, I believe that all of you have kids in school. So. Uh, let's start with Karen. What do you think about the uh, rules that have just been released about the return to school? Yeah, I think it's a very positive step forward. Um, and I say that in the context not just of having kids, but also in the fact that we've been running day camps at Friday Village uh, since the beginning of July. And we've been following a lot of those protocols, and uh, it's been great. It's been great to have the kids be able to be kids again and salvage a little bit of summer. And so it moving into school, I think, is so critical. It's uh, important for the economy, of course. We know that to get people back to work. But it's really, really critical for these kids to get back into a routine. And um, I think that for sure there's going to be things that have to get worked out and things are going to have to change and shift. But I think the idea of getting kids back to school is an important one. And the steps that they've taken are reasonable. And I think that people can feel confident that uh, going into the school year will be um, will be a good experience. Charles, there's been a lot of pushback from unions, particularly about the rules for elementary students, that uh, the class sizes for them have not been reduced, uh, and uh, that there seems that the, the unions, not surprisingly, want a lot more hiring to accompany this. What's your feeling about your own kids going back? Um, well, I have to issue my usual disclaimer that... Oh, right, uh, all I, the teachers in your family. <laughs> exactly. I almost forgot. I teach in multiple school boards um, in various parts of the province, and I've had the opportunity to talk to them. So, um, you, you know, just on, speaking in terms of the teachers and not to put words in their mouth, I mean, one of my in-laws said very very um, succinctly that, you know, they're trying to come to peace with what is a vast amount of uncertainty with regards to what classrooms will look like come the fall. Because, you know, when, when we when we talk about classrooms, we see the row of desks and the teachers standing at the, at the front of the class. And the reality is that these classrooms vary so much. I mean, you think of, you know, chemistry labs, you know, with with benches at which students are expected to partner. You think of vocational classrooms, you know, whether it's um, automotives or whether it's beauty sciences or, or what have you. 
Um, I mean, it is a really, really tricky situation from school to school, from classroom to classroom, and from school board to school board. And one of the criticisms that's been been labeled against the government is that they had months to prepare, and essentially their plan boils down to, okay, kids, wear a mask, and that's about it. And, you know, there are some very real questions as to whether this is going to be sustainable. Um, very real questions as to how reporting is going to work. I mean, for, for people, you asked about my kids. You know, my kids are totally looking forward to going back to school. We're going to wait until later in August to see what the numbers look like to make that determination as to whether they go back. I think hopefully we're hoping they will go back. Um, but, you know, if there is an outbreak within a given classroom or within a given school, I mean, how does that get reported out? How quickly does it get reported out? And what are the kinds of numbers that would actually legitimately cause health officials um, problems, which would actually give parents pause? And, of course, the, 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 the nightmare scenario is, you know, we have our kids back in school and by November it's like, well, we can't, we just can't do this because the, the cases are, are happening and spiking too quickly. And, um, and, and, you know, in a lot of American cities right now, um, they've just said remote. They're, they're not even messing with the notion of bringing kids back. And we are so fortunate in Canada. Our numbers are incredibly low at the moment. Um, so, you know, we, we have a big, big advantage over our American cousins. But, you know, again, the virus is so unpredictable that we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, John, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think we should be comparing ourselves to the United States. I mean, it's just That's right. when it comes to this stuff, it's we have a completely different culture, thank goodness. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, again, you know, I, I'm trying to uh, do a little bit of math to see in in those countries that did a great job with the first wave when did when did these new surges happen in relation to stage 3 reopening so i i think we will see that so john what what do you think about the plans for the return to school yeah i think we can't we can't and should uh, look to the us for anything quite frankly with respect to covid let alone uh, when the schools are open and how they're dealing with schools given the fact that the vast majority of their states have, have, have surged beyond sort of even worse than when it started but nonetheless i think you know, this is one of those issues that the prime that the, the premier, forgive me, the premier and and the minister of education have been grappling with, as, as Charles has said. It is it is a it is a tough call to to have to deal with this because you know the vast majority of parents, you know, in Ontario, as polls have said, and, and just anecdotally, want kids to go back to school for for a number of reasons, not only for learnings but for mental wellness for them for the kids. Uh, and just because last year school year was a bit of a tur- turbulent one, let alone. Uh, what happened with COVID when everything got shut down. So there is a need to have that. But but also, you know, the fact that the, the Premier and the Minister have always had the authority and, and sort of listened to authorities, health authorities, on this. I think I think the balance of what they did is is, is bang on. I think letting them go, giving parents an option if, if a student can't by way of wear a mask, uh, making sure there's funds available for, for child care, daycare, uh, for any extra learning that might might be as a result of, of parents who can't send their kids back to school, and also monitoring on a regular basis, as they have with the staged approach all along. I think uh, they've done it responsibly. Uh, I think that, by and large, parents and parent groups are happy with, with the result. And again, you know, we're at the beginning of August, uh, so we're almost a month away from school, and they'll be monitoring quite closely to see what happens over between now and then. 
Uh, and there will be no doubt that the premier will be quick to sort of shut things down or go online if he feels that things are unsafe. So I think I think parents can rest assured and be safe about that uh, that reality. Okay, uh, we're starting to run out of time. So, uh, what should we be looking for in the week ahead? What would you like to leave us with? Starting with Karen. Well, yeah, I think that um, we've. Toronto, Canada has had the benefit of learning from other jurisdictions around what works and what doesn't work. And whereas masks were not um, promoted at the beginning of the pandemic, now there seem to be a key um, force factor in limiting the spread. So I think that we're going to see better success in our phase three and phase four reopening than perhaps other jurisdictions because we've had the benefit of learning what works. And people are wearing masks. It's not political. It's just pragmatic. And if this is what it's going to take in order to get people back to school and to get um, people back to, you know, doing their job and working, then that's what we'll do. And so I'm more optimistic than Charles about our ability to manage and navigate with the virus. I think we've learned a lot. We've put that learning to good use. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we can be proud of that fact. Charles? Oh, I'm enormously proud of that fact, as I've said on numerous occasions. I think um, more and more of our attention as Canadians will be heading south of the border, which is to say that with less than 100 days before the U.S. is scheduled to have its presidential election, we've already seen old crazy boots musing last week about a possible delay in the election. Um, We're seeing all sorts of politicization within the United States Postal Service with regards to mail-in voting. I think things are going to become very, very unsettled um, as Donald Trump increasingly becomes aware of the fact that he is um, done like dinner in an electoral sense, and I don't think his psychological makeup... What do you mean, become unsettled? Will... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't but know I mean, what you mean like, by take, that. Take, take a crazy person and, and give well, them reason to become okay, even we crazier. Don't, we don't and... need to psychoanalyze him. I think, uh, I think his actions speak to themselves without uh, using the C word. John, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, I'd say two quick things, Libby, as far as the weeks, uh, week ahead, and that is, the tracing app and, and what's happening with that and what's swirling around from the perspective of those that, that want to use it, the government that wants to insist that we use it and some of the conspiracy theories about the privacy and, and whether or not they're true or not. And we're hearing a lot of debate about that. So how that plays out over the next little bit is going to be important. And lastly, I'd say uh, sporting. You know, the first we had the first game, unfortunately, my Leafs lost <laughs> uh, to uh, Columbus. But, you know, let's just see how the, the, the professional sports play out on, on those COVID and hope that the NHL and uh, other leagues quite frankly, are, are COVID-free as far as tests. Okay. Uh, thank you all for uh, yet another interesting strategy session. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday, if not before. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz. Have a great week. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.